0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pensive Politics. I am your host, Christian Watson, and I am here with Michael Marino. Uh, Michael, why don't you introduce yourself for a moment and tell the listeners like your story and everything, very like short, elevated pitch, so to speak, and we'll get into it.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I kind of got my name on the internet um, 2019 January when I uploaded a video of me in a high school debate round my senior year. Um, getting disqualified for quoting, uh, quote, white supremacists such as Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. Um, This was in response to uh, our Latina opponents basically telling us that they were justified in using an abusive strategy in the format of debate against us because we're white and white people have power, so it doesn't really matter. Um, So, of course, we quoted Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro, because you have to quote people. That's like a format in debate. It's really expected. And so they make those arguments very well. So we quoted them. Then the judge stopped the round, said that we were causing psychological violence, you know, the whole, the whole stick. And then we uploaded it to YouTube. Uh, It got picked up by the daily wire. I think the video is sitting at about 800,000 views right now. So um, yeah, that put my name on the map. And then uh, I kind of had a second controversy. About five months ago, uh, about October, end of October, where I joined the Weaver State debate team, went to college, freshman, and it was about essentially the same thing. The professor was pushing these very anti-white, critical theory, cultural Marxist positions on the class. Um, And clearly not in the fashion of trying to teach debate or just entertain positions, but pushing it on students and not allowing you to debate against it. So I recorded those with my phone as well and um, uploaded them to YouTube and had a similar outcome. And so I, uh, I'm hated by many, but I'm also supported by a lot. So
0: Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I think, and I think that anyone who takes a stand is naturally going to be hated, no matter what they're standing on, standing on, and no matter what they're standing about. Really, because about it, a lot of people, and I've 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 noticed this, are not very comfortable when someone is assertive. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, yeah. being assertive can be a positive thing. Sometimes it can be something that you need to. Rein in in certain circumstances, but when but you when you are assertive number one, you already uh, touch a sense of a tinge of discomfort within someone else's mind. Because then, if they are not naturally assertive or they have an an ego complex, which I believe some of the people you were dealing with in this controversy certainly did, they will Mm -hmm. feel threatened by you. Then when you when you compound that assertiveness with uh, with 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 moral justice, with standing on a morally just position they will just absolutely go berserk and they have gone berserk in your case. And we'll talk about that in a moment or so. Um, but I just want to thank you for taking a stand and thank you for not backing down or not being quiet because unfortunately the collegiate debate world, uh, and I, I know this all too well is not open to people who want to take a stand on things that actually, uh, matter to them you can only take a stand on things that matter to the dominant narrative so it's almost in a the sense they expect you to be parasites to leech off of a overarching standard that you may or may not support personally or to help the sort of hierarchy of uh a- academic um i guess uh, fraud in that area uh elevate itself something of that sort uh, would you say that's correct? Would you say that's a correct assessment of um, what they're trying to do when they uh, have these sort of dominant ideologies uh, going into uh, uh, going into this practice? Because, like for example, in your case, uh, your professor wanted you to argue that space did not exist; that was an illusion created by white folks. So, I mean, these 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 ideologically slanted positions in the collegiate debate seem to me to be a simple product of the desire to parrot something, not the product of desire to find the truth. What say you
1: I would say that's exactly right. Um they don't actually care about debate as an activity at all. They are leftists first before anything else. Um and I don't even think they're debaters second. Many of these people um they're not even good debaters. They just win rounds by virtue signaling and calling their opponent racist and if they get lucky, which they often do, their judge is a college student who thinks that that's sufficient reasoning. Um, So that's essentially what, especially in the collegiate level of debate, uh, about 70% of arguments from my observation, don't quote me on that, there's no official study, but it seems like about 70% of the arguments being made are usually critical theory or or performative or the types of um, sophistry where, um, so for example, the professor said that outer space isn't actually outer space, it's the space that your body's in, right, because there's space all around us. And so if you put restrictions on that, you're putting restrictions on my body. If you put restrictions on my body without my consent, then you're raping me. And then I was like, well, that's not true. Space doesn't mean the space in your body. It has a specific meaning in this topic. It refers to outer space. And then he's like, well, now you're raping me with words. So you can see that, like, Uh. this is what I mean when I say sophistry. It's not actual pure reasoning. Uh, It's just non sequiturs. They find words that sound kind of similar to other words, and then they kind of use those to do a a gotcha and condemn you as a racist, link you into racism, as they would say. But um, yeah, that's exactly right. They don't care about debate. They don't care about truth. They care about learning how to virtue signal and parrot their uh, ideologies.
0: Well, precisely. Uh, So what have you done recently? Uh, I believe you on a project. What have you done recently to stymie the tide of academic conformity within debate? How are you sure. seeking to change debate from the groundswell of slanted thought, solid ideological thought that it is right now, and something that is actually meant to be? What are you doing?
1: So, I actively go to tournaments when people allow me to. Uh, what will happen, you know, a lot, it's happened a lot already, is I'll go to a tournament to volunteer as a judge. Um, because the thing about debate is. The vast majority of the judges are not paid. They are volunteer judges. So they're usually parents. So if I'm going to a debate and I'm in high school, I ask my mom to come judge because my school has a a quota of how many judges we need to bring per debaters. And so kids are doing that. And that's great. But the problem is that the the parents have absolutely like no idea how to judge. And so, you know, if you're a good debater, you might win the argument. But the, you know, mother judge who never has never watched an actual debate in her life, besides like a a politician presidential debate, um, she's going to vote for the other side because they were a better speaker or had a they were dressed uh, more professional, you know, Um, you just get screwed if you have judges like that. And so I try to You know, I understand that because that happened to me a lot in high school when I debated. And so I'll I'll volunteer my time for free. I'll go down to tournaments because I'm a qualified judge. I understand debate at a very deep level. And so I'll I'll go down there to judge. Um, But, you know, I'll go down there volunteering my time. Sometimes I'll drive an hour out, you know, from like my house and then I'll get there and they'll tell me to go home because there's so many coaches in the debate community that think I'm like a white supremacist or I've even heard people say that uh, they heard another coach accuse me of being a pedophile. Uh, absurd!
0: Like what?
1: Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a. I, I don't. I have no idea where they could ever get that. Um. I. The only thing I could think is maybe because just a year ago I was in high school and you know like I didn't too I did not do too bad in terms of flirting with female debaters. You know, like it's a pretty good. Thing. <laughs> so, so maybe now that I'm like out of high school and some of those um students are a year behind me and they're still in high school. Maybe that's what would give them a – I have absolutely no idea how they could call me a pedophile, though. But, uh, uh, yeah, and so my, oh. my point in, in saying that is that um, that's something I do is I go to tournaments, and when they do, let me judge. And that's even hard, too, because most coaches won't ask me. They are just they don't want anything to do with Michael Marino. My high school um, coach, she doesn't associate herself with me. I was supposed to coach for the school, but, I mean, towards the end, she kind of stopped liking me. And uh, I think she's very afraid to do anything with me now. But when I do have the opportunity, I'll judge at tournaments um, to help out. And then the, se- the the bigger thing I've been working on this has been a, a couple months, more than a couple months going now. I've I've had the idea for a couple of years now, but I've really started working on it in the I'd say past four four months. About is I've been working on my own debate organization, which will essentially function as an alternative to the current parent organizations that are responsible for hosting tournaments and deciding their rules and uh, allocating funding sometimes right now high school uses the nsda national speech and debate association Uh, colleges CETA cross-examination debate association and so the problem with both of these organizations is what i described at the beginning is that there's no standard of judging they let anyone judge and essentially, a, a, a judge could disqualify you or vote you down for any reason they want. Like what happened to me is, well, he heard Ben Shapiro, and he's a liberal college student who thinks that Ben Shapiro is somehow a Jewish Nazi, um, and so he drops me for racism. Yeah, and, and yeah, quite, the, quite, quite the oxymoron. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and in that situation afterwards, I went to the tournament director who is a uh, debate coach for the college team of Arizona State. So like, he is supposed to know his stuff. And what he told me and the other um, tournament director is that I should learn how to conform and that it was my fault because I knew that that judge had biases. And so I should have played to his biases. Like that's how most people, most coaches in the debate community, or at least half of them think about debate because of that, the debate organizations have taken no stance on judging their position is you just decide who wins the debate. And we're not going to tell you how you do that or what ways you can do that. that are correct and what ways are incorrect. Um, So that's, the biggest thing that our organization is going to remedy is we'll host tournaments with a set of rules and we'll make sure that judges are qualified. And then the mm. second thing is just maintaining real intellectual diversity in the debate community. Obviously um, if you have any position that sounds conservative or it's just to the right of the left, uh, it's going to be much harder for you. It's going to be an uphill battle. A lot of the positions you won't even be allowed to argue, like don't even think about arguing that gender is not a social construct or that Trump isn't racist. Um, whether or not you agree with those positions doesn't matter. The fact is you're not allowed to argue them in the debate space, and so all positions will be allowed. Uh, yeah, Ryan. I kind of rambled for a couple minutes there, but that's essentially what I've been working on. No, 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 no.
0: This is really – it's really important. It's really important because a lot of folks don't really under the, the, the depth of the malevolent thought and the conformist – uh, you know, gospel that rivets through the currents of academic debate. A lot of folks just really don't get it. A lot of folks, in fact, who are outside of the world of debate, especially collegiate debate in general, a lot of them are just like, well, you know, um, debate is a good thing. Debate is something that we need. And if you are doing good in debate, you must be a very good persuader. But in all reality, as you have shown, that's just not the case, right? It's not the case.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and there's so many people, like, like really, debate has stopped being what it's supposed to be. I know I know lots of people in the debate community who are black debaters who are recruited because their professors want black debaters, or at least that's how it seems. And um, they never learn how to debate a day in their life. Like, they'll be in debate for, for years. And then when you debate them in real life, they're terrible at it. All they know how to do is yell at you and call you racist, because that's what they've been trained to do. So they're not actually ever learning how to debate. They're not learning you know, the interrogation of a premise related right, to a conclusion, right. like logic. They and, don't uh, learn that. They they don't right. even have to learn how to give a speech. They, they can literally just give a rap song or a, a slam poem.
0: Precisely. Or, they don't learn and, and, anything yeah, per-
1: related to debate.
0: Yeah, precisely. But the reason a lot of universities still leech off of the assumption that automatically being a debater means something. Positive, and luminous about your mind, about your activities, is because it is a good PR move, right? It is essentially ignorance. It's profitable, right? So a university can profit or an educational institution in general can profit by simply having the word debate emblazoned upon their insignias, emblazoned upon their public websites because folks think, yep. oh, that means rigor. But it's deceptive. It is deceitful. There's a sort of deceitful alchemy going on within academia that presents – because like a lot of debate teams that I know, and I even say this about mine, they are like, oh, yes, we welcome everyone. Come in. Join us. And a lot of them will even ho- hold off on their ideological predispositions at the first one or two meetings. But as you get deeper into the organization, and as you actually start matriculating, as you actually start coming, uh, germinating into the organization, they will begin showing you their true colors. And at that point, a lot of folks that I've talked to have ran; they have absolutely just run. They have jetted. They're like, in fact, uh, one person I talked to was like, the first two or three events were absolutely astounding; they are phenomenal. Then, when I began getting into training. I began getting asked to, you know, defend abortion, which is fine since, you know, you should be able to um, – which de- you may not agree with. But when I didn't defend it as well as they wanted me to, they had an emotional reaction to that, and they began to ask me, well – are you? do you want to control women's bodies? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you going all out with this? They begin to yeah. scold you. That's not, that's, that's not the spirit of true pedagogy. That is, a, that is a, literally a spirit of, of academic of intellectual slavery that is trying to take over, hold over that person. Because if you're actually trying to teach them to be good with pedagogy, you would just say, okay, dude, your argument, the mechanics, the mechanics of your syllogism, had A, B, C, you know that those premises or whatever your conclusion we're missing this, it wouldn't be. Oh, you must hate women. Oh, you must hate. Them. No. So when you actually have this sort of emotionalism existing within debate, you quickly see. Exactly, its true nature, and in my opinion, getting to the true nature of things is one of the fundamental questions of philosophy. It's one of the fundamental questions of even academic discovery. It's one of the fundamental questions of every single field that that that, that does with the does with the creation of things, right? So, uh, even like with coronavirus, they're trying to get to the true nature of the coronavirus so they can actually attack it, right? Uh, if you don't have the, if you, we, the, the fact that we don't know the true nature of the coronavirus, actually, yes. insulates our ability to actually affect it. Which is why folks are going going mad and everything. So, but anyway, yeah. the true nature of debate is what folks are starting to see when they when they actually get into these teams and start to get in the process. What? now. now here, here's my question for you: When did you begin to know the true nature of debate? Like, I'm asking you to go back a few years, I guess. To you know, imagine like little Michael, right? <laughs> little, little Mike. When yeah. did, like, little Mike, like, a few years ago, when you were first starting off, really begin to know, okay, this is the true nature of debate?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I joined in 11th grade, so I'm going to have to go back a couple of years and try and think. It it, it was really, really quickly. I think, um, so, like, I've been a debater my whole life, but I didn't really know there was a sport a whole lot. So when I joined in 11th grade, I was kind of like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder how, how good people are. Like, I this is supposed to be professional debate and you know I, I guess i quickly realized um that like it, <laughs> there there's really no reason to worry about it like these are just normal people doing debate but um one of the one of the bad things about normal people is um you know i was i was familiar with the type of fallacious reasoning that normal people do all the time because i debated them my whole life and then you just see those same types of people in debate except now they're given the tools to 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 really argue you know these these type of fallacious mindsets, and so I'd say like I really noticed, um, I guess this type of like critical theory part, um, when I when I started really competing and going to tournaments, I, I my I, luckily I had an assistant captain who who taught me about like critiques pretty early on in progressive debate. Um, not as much as I would have liked him to, but you know I definitely got a feel for it, especially because I competed in varsity, um, pretty much right off the bat. Um, so I and even when I was in doing traditional Lincoln Douglas you know most arguments through racism would be brought up but when I got to policy policy it's like yeah even in Utah I'd say maybe like depending on the circuit about 30% of the time to 50% of the time the argument's going to be like a critique like a uh, or some critical theory uh, anti-white identity politics feminist position mm
0: uh, hmm uh. I see, wow, that's something else and so the question, I have a few I'm going to get on with this, but I suppose let's choose one so, as it relates to could you imagine an argument being made that the intellectual and academic insularity of debate may help produce people who represent and embody the nature of duality in society what i mean what i mean by that so if you have a entirely conservative debate space or entirely left wing debate space and the society overall as as america right now america society overall despite popular belief is predominantly conservative like most folks are conservative yeah. or center 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 or centrist uh, the, a lot of folks are not a lot of leftists are in the media, a lot of leftists are in, are in academia, but most people in America are middle of the road or rightly. That's just how it is. I mean the middle of the country, in the South, they all overwhelmingly vote for conservative um, politicians all the time. So could the argument not be made that producing people that, that, that go against those narratives allow those narratives to be tried, tra- tried, tried and tested in the public space? and either disregarded or kept on the behest of how well they, they, they endorse scrutiny. Every, every sort of, uh, every process, every principle requires the opposite, right? Love requires hate for us to differentiate what love is from hate, right? Hate requires, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. So if we didn't know, if we didn't have hate, what, what would love be, right? If we didn't have sunlight, what would, what would darkness be? If we didn't have dark light, what would what what sunlight be? These sort of have a sort of, uh, a sort of symbiotic relationship. And so perhaps this ideological conformity is in that same spirit, in that sem, same same uh, spirit of symbiosis that is required for concepts to mature and be investigated thoroughly and correctly. I'm not saying this is an, a good argument, or I agree with it, but I think it is something that could be said. What would you say to that?
1: Well, it is important for... You know, liberals to say their ideas i think every idea should be entertained um you know i'm constantly interrogating my beliefs and interrogating their beliefs um but the issue is when it's an echo chamber specifically in academia because academia is where the mainstream comes from so whatever whatever's going on in academia whatever school of thought is prevailing is going to trickle down into society so like the vast majority of people were not academics during the enlightenment period, but the philosophical movements that happened definitely influenced the way that people thought and and worked and acted. You know, there's still a lot of people who are pre-modern, but the point is that there's a little bit of a delay, but once that delay kicks in, you know, it, it starts affecting all aspects of culture. And so with academia specifically, if there aren't people who are contesting leftism on college campuses, then, they can just develop these theories with absolutely no check. They don't have to make sense. They can they can they can look at phenomenon um, and then extrapolate potential conclusions from those phenomenon, which is fine, right? But the problem is they're only hypotheses that leftists come up with. So they'll look at the fact that you know there are less women in certain fields and then make a hypothesis about society being oppressive and, and the patriarchy, which is a possible explanation, but it, it's just a hypothesis at that point. Um, but there's no one there to call them on that. And even if they are, they're called racist, until so they quit academia, and then we're right back to no one calling them on ah, that. Ah, and then, so, so, and then, so what you're and then, saying then, is
0: that, yeah, the principle of duality oh, and embodied within their own field, essentially, it's singularity yeah. in their own field. And I, and it, yeah, so that's actually a brilliant point, because if they cannot even have that duality in their own field, A, how can their presuppositions be known to be correct or to be sound, argumentatively? And B, um, how are they themselves actually benefiting from their exchanges if there's no duality within their own field? So you're right, there's no friction in in academic debate between leftism and... There's no friction. The only friction that happens is within that same umbrella of leftism, or so to speak, Yeah. Um, in which you you are trying to see who can be more left wing. For example, when I went to a debate tournament in Illinois, um, this uh, the, there were these two teams. I don't to this school, so there were, there were these two teams, and they were basically arguing. One was arguing that it was basically a debate between disability rights and those the other two debaters' experiences as queer people, and yeah. which. Well, listen. No, I'm. I'm swimming against anything like that. You know. I, I. I. myself. You know. I'm not against that, but uh, but just from a purely argumentative st- standpoint, so much of their own experiences and so much emotionalism or emotionally charged sub subjects were injected into that space that it really became what issue matters more. And the judges themselves said, you know what. This is hard for me because I'm disabled and I'm queer and I'm gay or whatever. And like, this is so hard for me because I feel like I'm, an, I'm, I'm betraying part of myself or myself as a whole if I, if I pick one of you uh, one or the other. But I wanted to scream to the that judge in the exercise of what Emerson called the sanctity of my mind, that sort of sentiments that allow that, that that can become the universal sense of the world that he said in self reliance. I wanted to scream to my lungs. These are not things that are A, the most salient about you, and B, the most definitive about you. These are things that if they constitute you, constitute you on a micro level. The fact that you are a luminous, brilliant uh, 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 individual, able to reason, able to walk, able to breathe, able to observe the world, able to laugh, able to cry, able to love. Those are things that take priority over these socially created identities that you hold so dear to your heart. I wanted to scream that to her, but I would have been... Then I actually know what they would have. They would have said, "You are invalidating my experience," and one folk even said, "I was invalidating their existence." They are literally tying what should be an academic exercise to their, you know, existential footing in reality. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's that is exactly what they're doing. The, the debate space has become, in many areas, in many circuits, an oppression Olympics. If you watch even the speech events, which are not debate, it's, it's speech events are where you just give a speech and you use persuasion and rhetoric and you don't ever have to defend your points to anyone. It's a, your speech and then you're done. If you watch the Nationals and you watch, I think it's like a um, dramatic inter- interp, you can watch the top five. You will be able to predict without fail what their speech is going to be about just by looking at them. If they're black, they're going to talk about being black. If they're fat, they're going to talk about being fat. If they're a woman and they're not fat and they're white or whatever, they're going to talk about sexism. It's And like, if, if there's nothing that you can tell, um, then they're going to talk about being poor. Like it's always about oppression. You will never get to nationals arguing about some conservative point. Never. Because it's, well, what oppression can you gain off of that? Um, so yeah. Mm. And, and, and it also illustrates the point before that they don't ever have to – you know, like there is some infighting, they do have to disagree with each other from a frame of leftism. So they'll both agree on the framework of, you know, oppression, everyone's oppressed, right? And then they'll disagree within that frame, but they never have anyone to come and contest that frame. Like, well, wait a second, maybe that frame actually isn't true. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that. So, you know, that's how the echo chamber works is they have a framework, and then they they debate within that framework, you know, moderate lefts to you know, radical lefts, and that, that only like, radicalizes the belief into like a super-left position. It doesn't actually interrogate whether or not the framework that allowed that polic- position to grow out of was correct.
0: Right, right. That, that, that is precisely correct. So it's just – a collegiate debate is simply – what it has become is nothing more than an exercise – And and phantom problems and things that have been understood by the people in that space largely, overwhelmingly, people who stay in that space, people who retain influence in that space, people who direct that space and guide that space as integral to their experience in life. And in my opinion, that is a poor existence to live. It is a poor existence to live, to to, to believe that you are bound to this earth with a, a a, a certain trait that literally shapes your future. That is, imagine for a moment if the visionaries of the world, the pioneers of the world had believed that. Imagine if Magellan had decided that since no one else before him had actually been around the globe, no one else had circumnavigated it, and the, it would have been arduous, it would have been a lot of, the risk of death would have probably happened. Imagine if he said, you know what, I'm not going to do it. No. He and his crew did it. They died. Oh, he died. A lot of them died. But they made it. And they literally started a course for, for, for people to be able to hone his craft and now circumnavigate safer and more quicker. If Magellan had not done that, who is to say that we would even be able to operate in the world the same way we do today, as efficiently as we do today? Taking risks yeah. in the face of uncertainty is quite literally a big part of the human experience. But a lot of people in this sort of You know, oppression camp don't agree with is that taking a risk is anything that's valuable at all. It's not a risk that puts you where you want to be. It is is a predisposition based upon control at all that puts you where you want to be. And that is simply defeatism squared or even cubed, actually.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess, you know, the trade off for them is that they don't. They don't have to worry about the responsibility that would come from making those achievements. It's like, yeah, it kind of sucks that their life's meaningless, but at least they can virtue signal and put all of the blame onto other people. And that's a lot mm. easier than taking responsibility and, and, and following absolutely heroic path.
0: Absolutely. So I want to I wanna pivot over a little bit. I want to tie this while we're talking into the corona, current coronavirus hysteria because, my goodness, I, I cannot watch the news. I cannot do anything without seeing… Uh, the President making an announcement about it. it the NFL just shut down their to spend their seasons for for this uh, spend their season for uh, the rest of the of the time of its duration. Several one point eight million school children are actually out of school right now to do this. Uh, several colleges across the country have actually shut down campus. I mean, you said even your college did before the before yeah. we began talking. Uh, yeah, that's and
1: 150, a few- that's the number I heard.
0: Oh God's sakes! Wow, yeah, yeah, a, a lot, a lot of folks are doing that. In fact, all of Ohio schools, I think, are being shut down. Uh, um, by cider Disneyland's being shut down. Everyone is just going into complete berserk mode over a a virus, a virus that yeah. number one has a survivability rate of ninety six percent globally. That's number one. Number two. Is not a harm, but a nuisance to a great majority of the population under 50. Number three is completely and utterly survivable, those with even the basic amenities in healthcare over 50. And number four is not even one tenth of 1%, one ounce, one iota. Of what human beings in the past 100 years have overcome to be as great as we are right now. In the past 100 years, we have literally created ways to challenge distance and time and interconnect this world so that our lives could be easier, better, and, 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 and more sort of like more uh, cooperative. We have literally unlocked the nader, unlocked the box of human cooperation, which has allowed our economy to be so globalized and has allowed our relations to be so instantaneous, which provided the conceptual foundation for the internet. And we are freaking out over something that is not even near challenges we had to go to get there. What do you think about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's not really a clear answer on coronavirus right now, but I will say if anything from what I learned about, you know, the YouTube videos I posted and the reactions I got, it's just how connected we are. Um, you know, like it all it exponential growth and compound growth is a force of nature. It's it's extremely mm. um you you can't even begin to comprehend how powerful it is. You know, so like when I posted the videos initially, they were getting very, very small views, you know, and then I started posting them to Reddit, Twitter, that type of stuff. It incrementally increased. And then, you know, as it continued, the exponential curve, you know, happened and it got like, like a lot, like hundreds of thousands of views. And then that triggered the Daily Wire to write articles about it and and other news outlets, which made it even more. And so, you know, it it doubles and doubles and doubles and it, it gets very exponential. And that's how all things which operate via connection between people work so if we have a disease it's like yeah okay it hasn't infected more than the flu this year but if the rate at which it's increasing is also doubling like you know we we shouldn't be treating it like it's nothing and even if you're you're right that the majority of people who get it are not going to even have severe symptoms if you're a healthy person you know from what i've heard you might have like a, a, a cold you might not even have any symptoms but if we assume even a 1% mortality rate and we assume that at least 1 million people are infected, I'm maybe my math is wrong here, but isn't that like 10,000 people? Isn't 1% of a million, like 10,000 or something like that? I don't know. Oh, it's, you're, it's asking, you're asking the wrong brother.
0: You're asking the wrong yeah, brother. I it, it's something like that. I do, yeah.
1: I, I think it's, I think it's 10,000. Um, someone can correct me on the podcast if they want, but I uh, like 10,000 people dying isn't a joke. Right. And you know, last night I watched a podcast with Joe Rogan with, um, the disease infection specialist, I think his name's Michael, uh, something like that. And he was saying that conservative estimates are this disease is going to infect, um, like, I think he said like 70 million people or, or, or 70 million hospitalizations from it or something like that. And, and would kill about four 480,000 people. Um, and that's conservative estimates. See, so yeah, I mean, that's not like a lot compared to the 8 billion people we have on Earth, but it's still it's still something. Even if you're not going to be, um, you know, sick and die from it, if you get sick and you're an incubator, you could get other people sick who will die from it. So while I don't think it's like end of times, I do think it, it probably is worth like at this point, containment isn't really possible. It's in the United States. There's 546 cases. Last I checked in Utah, there's three. But but that's only the ones that are confirmed. Um, my guess is it's probably a couple dozen in Utah right now because, you know, it takes a couple of days for people to realize they're sick. So I'm thinking there's probably like 20 people in Utah who have it. And of course, they're going to infect more before they're checked and confirmed. And it's, it's going to spread. Um, Again, there's lots of estimates everywhere. Um I you know, I saw one of the banks was saying it's probably gonna be seventy percent of humanity that'll be infected, which is a crazy estimate. Uh Business Insider they did forty percent to seventy percent, that's their estimate. Um I think it was the HWO they announced today that it's a pandemic. Um so it's there's a lot of different perspectives going on about it. And I don't think we should be crazy about it and think it's like the end of times. It's probably not gonna kill you. Um but it is something to worry about, I think. And it is something to try and take actions towards controlling. And I think closing down schools in areas that do have confirmed cases might be a good idea. But I mean, you know, I'm not an expert mm-hmm. on the subject. I haven't mm-hmm. read every news article. That's just my, my thoughts on it from what
0: I know. Right. Right right. No, no, look, and I I think that's absolutely reasonable. Listen, I, I I would be it would be a fool's errand for anyone to sit up here and say Anyone to sit on a position of authority or position of of, of ignorance and say, "No, this is something not to be worried about." The problem I am trying to identify is the way in which we worry about it, or the way in which, not not worry. The way in which we address this, we are addressing it in a in, in a in a in a manner that resembles nothing short of mass panic. And mass panic can actually, it has their scientific effects, it actually weaken the immune system and actually make you more susceptible to contracting, like being seriously ill or hurt from this virus in the first place. I think that we, we should, we should take reasoned, rational approaches, but we should do so calmly. We should do so in a way that, that inspires confidence and leadership, not in a way that inspires, you know, uh, debilitating, uh, the debilitating sickness of worry. That's my thing. That's my thing. Yeah. I think that look, look, we have to address we, we have to address this in several several ways. We have to make sure that this is contained in any way possible. I think um, uh, possible respecting other civil liberties, of course. That's always very important because during public health crisis, the government tends not to respect civil liberties. We are seeing that we're seeing that in Italy, where everyone's literally being China. shut down. We're seeing it in New York, where China. Oh yeah, China literally just throwing people in fucking cages, and we're see, we're seeing it yeah. in New York where they're literally restricting the amount of people. I can gather and move freely in a space. So I mean there are, are things we need to do, but we do not need to restrict people's liberties in my opinion. But let me actually ask yeah. you this. How do you think, consistent with the libertarian principle, how do you think the government should respond to public health crises?
1: That's an interesting question. <laughs> a little notification right there. You can cut that out and post. I'll insert now. Um, Yeah, that's an interesting question, um, because like, libertarianism is founded on the NAP non aggression principle. So you can make the argument that if you are a walking incubator, and by just someone breathing in the air that you excel, um, that they will get infected, I would say that you would be um, passively aggressing against people, violating their right, in some sense. And so I could see a libertarian argument or justification for preventing people from being able to leave their house. If they're truly like that, I mean, in the same way that I could see a libertarian argument for banning smoking in public, um, because, you know, like, I don't consent to breathing that toxic mess. And um, yeah, you, you can make arguments for that. I I think my if I were my position, libertarian perspective would be if someone is at the point where just their existence is likely to cause other people around them to be sick. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable for the government to prevent them from going around other people. But that's just my first thoughts about it. I haven't really thought about what to do in case of a pandemic from a libertarian perspective.
0: Yeah, it's it's been an issue that I'm currently developing. Yeah, it's been an issue I'm currently developing on right now. Personally, I think that there are a lot of things that have to be considered here. Um, although the harm principle typically, which is, which is basically the foundation non-aggression principle, uh, as it was stated by, by John Stuart Mill, it really implies… Quite, di- quite direct ingre- aggression. I think that if we have a standard that says aggression can be passive, then a lot of things that people do that are per- per- perhaps even benign in terms of uh, being able to harm your body or harm your existence could be construed as aggression and that can be used uh, uh, as a bludgeon against them in a libertarian society. And that's actually the antithesis of a libertarian society in my opinion. So I think there are a lot of things to consider but I do think one of the few, so when I went for president a few years ago, One of the few things he talked about, one of the few departments he wanted to keep, because he wanted to abolish so many departments. One of the few departments was the Department of Health he wanted to keep. I do think there is a role for the government to play in soliciting experts and getting them on panels and trying to guide public health. I don't think that role exists in terms of health care. I'm not sure it exists in terms of, uh, you know, Healthcare is ours, or whatever. No, I don't think it exists, in terms of, but it exists in terms of advice and perhaps counsel, maybe. So I do think, you know, if I was president and I was libertarian and everything, I am libertarian. If I was president, I probably would be meeting with the CDC constantly. I probably would have a CDC in the first place, and I probably would do, be doing everything I can, working with private partners to try to contain this thing. Now, you get the last word, man. Right. Yeah, you uh, yeah yeah you you get last word. What do you think about that?
1: Oh, sorry. I, it, okay, I, I I didn't hear what you said at the end. Um. Yeah. So I, I yeah. I I think it should be a fine line. Um. Obviously, like we shouldn't say if you breathe around someone, you don't they they don't consent to having your air on them. But if there's like an actual infectious disease, maybe the law could be like you're not allowed to go within twenty feet of people or touch anything that other people use. Um, which I guess would indirectly result in them probably having to be confined to their home. But yeah, again, like, I don't, I don't think that agreeing to that. (laughs) I I don't, I don't think you would necessarily break, you know, the NAP by conceding that. I think you could still, you know, make a very clear distinction between which things are harms and which things are just, you know, lack of positives or um, I agree. Just. Human rights.
0: I agree. Uh, I agree. I agree. I think there is a there's definitely a place for the NAP in terms of the administration of health, public health. I do agree. I agree. Yeah. I think that's that's that that that's right. All right, Michael. Do you have anything else you want to say before we close off? Anything else you want people to know? No,
1: thank you for uh, having me on your podcast. I look forward to listening more. If if any of the viewers want to find out more of my stuff, my YouTube channel is Michael Marino, Instagram is Michael Marino Two K, as well as Twitter. But That's about
0: it. All right. Thank you guys for listening, and uh, stay tuned for another episode of of, Pins of Politics. All right. Thanks.